Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. From the US, we're joined by Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, and our guest there is Sally Miller, chief executive of the Institute of International Bankers. Today, we'll be talking about a new FT study on diversity, the place of women in finance. We'll also be looking at the latest headache for Credit Suisse in terms of tax probes. And finally, that interview that Ben has done in the US with Sally Miller about the issue of non-US banks and the role they play in the world's largest economy. First, though, to diversity. And Laura, you've been leading a pretty mammoth task, a data-led analysis of the state of women in finance, particularly looking at the dearth of senior women in finance. This is a lot of data that you've crunched over the past few weeks. What are the key findings that you would highlight? I guess the biggest finding is that even though if we look across the entire population of companies that we looked at, women are now more than half of their overall workforce. You see a real gap when it comes to the representation of women at junior and at senior levels. 58% of the employees class as being junior would have been female. By the time you get to the more senior levels, you're talking about around 25-26%. So we're seeing that the women are really not holding on and they're not really getting up to those senior roles. One of the most striking bits of data actually was around that junior level, the kind of recruitment level jobs. And some of the big banks seemed, according to the data, to be hiring a clear majority of women. You said the overall is 58%. But a couple of the banks stood out for having 60-70% women in that kind of intake category. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the people who would have had a high percentage of junior females, that tends to happen a lot in the retail banks. So you could have people who would be classed as being junior because they were tellers in bank branches. They may have worked there for 30 years. They may never have any aspiration to be anything beyond bank tellers and they never actually wanted to get to mid-levels. But typically, those kind of customer service jobs have tended to be female-filled. So we do find that there is a higher skew in terms of female representation at junior levels when it comes to the large retail banks. Let's name some names in terms of the best practice and maybe the worst offenders as well. Who stands out for you? So in terms of the worst offenders, it will probably come as no surprise that the Asian banks and the Japanese banks in particular came out as being the worst. When it comes to senior levels, we're talking about around 6%. I think it's fairly well known that they are somewhat further behind on the gender diversity issue in Japan in particular. Elsewhere in Asia, it's actually fairly interesting. So just talking to banks anecdotally about their experience across the world, and this would be some of the big international banks. They said actually it was easier to retain women in Asia because it was easier for the women who had children and wanted to keep working to hire home help. So they said that basically you can hire someone to mind your children and to look after your house and to maybe even cook for you a lot more cheaply than you can in either New York or in the UK. And that means that if you have children relatively young in your career, you're able to actually go back into the workplace and it's still makes economic sense to work while you have small children. When we look at some of the better performers, I mean, 
large US banks have made good strides and they continue to invest a lot of effort. So you would typically see numbers around the 30% mark for the large US banks, which is over the average. But there wasn't anyone who looked absolutely brilliant. We didn't have a single bank that was anywhere near equality, which would be a 50% mark. So even if we look at the average would have been around 26%, there was no significant outlier to the upside. The highest would have been City and that was only because of a glitch where their numbers for senior managers also include a number of mid-level managers. So that is somewhat worrying. Just a final point, your data was gathered from I think 50 institutions spanning banking, insurance, asset management and professional services. Is there any sectoral difference worth noting here? Probably the best sectorally would have been in the professional services world. So just looking here at the chart, if we take out City, the best numbers would have been from Deloitte and then PwC would have been in the same general zone as them. They have also invested a lot of time in returnship programmes and in other kind of work-life balance programmes that make it easier for mothers to return to work. And then also when you have a consulting type job that may be a more flexible role generally. So you can kind of see why they would be able to get better figures than some of the more cut throat end of the investment banking business. It is difficult. I mean, I was talking to someone who was saying, you know, with the best will in the world, you can't be a part-time investment banker. Clients who are paying a lot for the services of these very big, very expensive firms, they expect their investment banker to be available and they don't expect them to be working half days or to be working three days a week. So I think there are certain roles that even if you do have firms who are very keen to make them open to everyone and to make them flexible, some roles just don't lend themselves to it. Well, the full richness of all this data and the analysis that goes with it is available online. Just go to ft.com and you'll find it pretty easily. Let's move on to our second topic of the day, which is a look at Credit Suisse and its latest woes. Caroline, what's going on at Credit Suisse? There's been a bunch of tax probes right across a range of countries. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a Swiss bank caught up in a tax evasion scandal is hardly a shock headline. But in this instance, what's notable is just the size and the scope of the investigation. There were simultaneous investigations launched in the UK, France, Netherlands, Australia and Germany. So it's very rare cooperation between the various authorities that we've seen all honing in on Credit Suisse and very little in terms of the detail of what they're actually looking at beyond that the bank allegedly facilitated tax evasion. Now this recalls investigations from a few years ago where UBS was probably the poster child of that series of investigations and that was very much US focused. This feels like it's much more of a European thing. Do we know how different it is from the US probes that went on several years ago or whether it's just the European arm of that? Well, with the exception of Australia, it tends to be European, but with that Australian element as well. I mean, the other thing to note about that cooperation is just that the Swiss were rather pointedly left out of the loop. And in quite an astonishing statement, the Swiss Attorney General said it was astonished at the way this operation had been organised with the deliberate exclusion of Switzerland and that it would be considering further steps. I think, yes, you're right that the US scrutiny of UBS perhaps a decade ago has launched a wave of other tax evasion probes in other countries and other parts of the world. And I think that's probably intensified in the light of, first of all, the financial crisis, but also more recent developments such as the Panama Papers. And let's remember that the tail of these investigations is remarkably long. UBS just a couple of weeks ago confirmed that it would face a trial in France stemming from similar issues. And this is still despite the fact that Switzerland has recently overhauled its laws. 
Credit Suisse has commented that it follows a strategy of full client tax compliance and is still trying to gather information about the probes. So, Laura, is this latest CS problem symptomatic of another wave of crackdowns on Swiss banks more generally? I think that is certainly the fear. So the other Swiss banks, unsurprisingly, aren't very keen to talk about this. But there is certainly nothing at this stage to suggest that this is a Credit Suisse-only issue. And what we've seen in the past is that an issue starts in one bank and then quickly you find that actually there was something more systemic going on and you find a lot of banks had inadvertently done the same thing. The Swiss banking industry has been trying to clean up its image. It has been trying to really say that they have changed their ways. These issues are behind them. But it is a very long tail. So I think certainly there are concerns that this could lead to fines for the other Swiss banks. And also that it's just going to set the banks back in terms of the work that they've been trying to do to rehabilitate their image and to try to convince the world that they are different now and that all the bad stuff is in the past. Okay. Let's now go to New York, where Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been speaking to Sally Miller, the chief executive of the Institute of International Bankers. Sally Miller spends a lot of time shuttling between New York and Washington, representing the interests of non-US banks and financial institutions operating in America. And she's talking to Ben about the role that non-US banks play in the US market. Sally, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, Lots to talk about. Financial regulation reform has been one of the key topics, certainly for the new administration since they took power. But it seems that overseas there's lots of hopes and expectation that Dodd-Frank, the landmark piece of post-crisis rulemaking, uh, will be somehow rolled back or even, even repealed. And that hope seems to have been pushing up lots of uh, the shares of, uh, of the big banks uh, over the past few months. Are, are those hopes realistic, would you say? I think there's definitely going to be focus on Dodd-Frank. As far as a complete repeal, I think that's probably something that's not likely, at least with respect to the Senate. But there's a lot of ways that Dodd-Frank can be reformed. And the assumption is that all these new faces will be somehow gentler on the banks. Is, is that a fair one? I think there's probably a, an assumption that the administration is going to be vetting candidates that are more closely aligned to what they think is important. And as we know, it is about the economy and uh, jobs and, and reform in that space. So the, the starting point intellectually, I suppose, is that Dodd-Frank uh, went too far. It restricted banks from doing the jobs that banks are supposed to do. I think you would find a lot of people in the banking industry agree. There's some classic examples in terms of the over-inclusion of banks in the enhanced prudential standards. In the enhanced prudential standards area, what we call the SIFI, mm-hmm. significantly important financial institution, is determined by an asset size of $50 billion. Right. And as it applies to the foreign banking community, there's about 150 foreign banks operating in in the U.S., it captures 110 foreign banks and less than 30 domestic banks because the way the, the it has been interpreted, they look at assets on a global basis. Now, if you look back and say, well, what is the enhanced prudentials? What is that provision of Dodd-Frank meant to accomplish? And it is meant to protect the financial stability of the U.S. I would submit that 110 foreign banks individually, these banks do not have an impact on the financial stability of the U.S. Just to add a bit of color there, so that's the the big Dutch bank, uh, Rabobank, for example, the big agricultural lender in the U.S. So that currently is, is hit by these standards designed to rein in the likes of Citigroup or Bank of America. 
That's correct. But the other aspect of it as well is that under the enhanced prudential standards, the Fed has also required our largest banks, not the Robos, but the even larger banks to form an intermediate holding company and be forced to ring fence capital here in the U.S. and not be able to use capital that is held in the home country or in other areas of the world to support their activities here. And so that has really had an impact on our members and their footprint here in the U.S. So the likes of Barclays, Deutsche Bank, BNP Paribas. What what, what does it mean, practically speaking, for their businesses over here? Uh, Are they thinking twice about expanding their balance sheets? Well, I think most of the largest foreign banks that have an IHC, I think, would tell you that they have to be here, that Mm -hmm. they're not leaving the U.S. just because of the capital markets and, and the opportunities here. If you look at the data from the time that the IHCs were put in place, the regulations and coming into compliance just in one year in in 15, foreign banks shrunk their assets by $500 billion. 270 was in the broker-dealer space Mm -hmm. and about 230 in the banking space. And I would submit that that shrinkage is largely due to the large banks having to get into compliance with this intermediate holding company. I think an interesting data point is also that foreign banks shrinking their banking footprint by that 230. That's the first time that foreign banks have done that in a non-recessionary year here in the U.S. So it is something that we are watching and and waiting. And we believe in 2016, the broker-dealer assets have also shrunk an additional $100 but I don't have the banking assets to tout at this particular time. The conclusion you're drawing from these numbers is that... uh the regulatory overreach has been too much. Uh, definitely, definitely. And let's talk about Volcker, which I know your members are, are interested in, seeing it reviewed, perhaps plucked out of Dodd-Frank. Again, how realistic is that, given the Republicans' difficulties with apparently simpler stuff like healthcare? Well, I think I think there is some receptivity on the parts of Congress, and and again, as we said, some of this can be done through regulation, to fixing Volcker. Obviously, Chairman Henserling over in the House has talked about a full repeal of Volcker, which we, of course, would support. But if it is something less than a full repeal of Volcker, I think some of the prime candidates for fixing are what is the definition, where is the line between market making and proprietary trading. The Fed last year came out with a staff study that suggested that the prohibition on prop trading has actually had a negative impact in liquidity in the corporate bond market. And I think this is something our members have been talking to the Fed a bit for quite some time about our concerns in this area. Mm-hmm. And we recently heard Governor Powell mention that in a speech, I think, in the last two months. He also mentioned that this was something that they needed to take a look at. That can be done, I believe, through regulation. Mm-hmm. Another area that we think is a prime candidate to be fixed is the extraterritorial reach of the Volcker Rule. The drafters of the Volcker Rule said back when it was even being considered that Volcker only applied here in the U.S., that it was not intended to impact financial services players that were operating in their home country. They should be subject to their home country rules. Well, we have a situation right now where we might have a a bank, let's say in England or France, whatever, that is uh, running a fund, and that fund 
is sold to um, home country investors, English, French, et cetera. It's never sold here in the U.S. Yet because the French bank or the British bank might hold over 25%, it is then deemed to be covered by Volcker by virtue of that bank also having a footprint here. And I think you mentioned earlier the the Choice Act. This is uh, Chairman Jeb Henseling in in the House. He's developed some kind of template, which he said he was going to represent. I'm not sure he has yet, but... This act, uh, as far as I understand it, has a big emphasis on capital, uh, that banks can get an off-ramp from tougher regulatory standards, so long as they maintain a leverage ratio of about 10% to gross assets. What's the IIB's view on this? There are aspects of Chairman Henserling's bill that we strongly support, the full repeal of the Volcker rule. And foreign banks operating here in the U.S. operate under many formats. So Chairman Henserling's bill says that you, the institution, would not have to comply with these enhanced prudential standards if you could meet what we call an off-ramp or a 10% leverage ratio. Well, that won't work for branches whose capital is held at the parent by virtue of them being a branch of the parent. So we have to find a mechanism for taking care of the branches so that they have a they have the ability. And remember, we've just talked about 110 banks, and many of them are in branch format. And then with respect to the leverage ratio, we can talk about whether that's the right measure in terms of impact on the financial stability of the U.S. But if Chairman Henseling continues with a leverage ratio and a 10%, we think there needs to be some tweaks in terms of what is calculated in the leverage ratio. We shouldn't have to count cash and U.S. government securities in that measure. But that's just one way. And just finally, by the time people are listening to this, perhaps Governor Dan Tarullo, perhaps the single most important figure in the lives of many of the people I speak to uh, on a day-to-day basis at the big banks, he'll have gone from the Fed. Um, What are your hopes for his replacement? Well, I look forward to working with his replacement, whoever he or she may be. We would hope that that person would bring a practical view to some of the legislation and regulation. Our position is here is we should be looking at the banking industry in terms of job creation, investment in the markets and in the infrastructure here, and we should be looking at rules and regulations with a fresh eye to see if, in fact, they have a chilling impact on job creation and investment in the U.S. economy. Sally Miller, thank you very much. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Caroline and Laura here in the studio, Ben in New York, and his guest Sally Miller from the Institute of International Bankers. Also, remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at fg.com slash banking, including that latest data-driven exercise on women in finance. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Lauren Leatherby. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.